Today's uh, scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 14, verse 43 to 52. The uh, betrayal and arrest of Jesus. And immediately, while he was speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with them a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed them. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And the young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, good morning, way folks. Uh, welcome to our online service. I'm coming to you from downtown South Pasadena in front of my Olin Mills background. If you grew up in the 80s and 90s, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, I want you to know it's, it's August already. Uh, school starts this month, uh, much to the chagrin of uh, our parents and our kids. Uh, I've lost some hair. The hair I do have is whiter. Um, this is how 2020 is shaking out. Uh, this morning, uh, we're coming to the end of our Mark series, and uh, we're looking at the last part of Jesus' life. And in our segment this morning, it's the arrest of Jesus. And in the arrest of Jesus, um, we usually think of, we have one betrayer, Judas, but we actually have three betrayers here. And it's not just Judah, I mean Judas. It's uh, Judas, Peter, and a nameless, naked, running man. And uh, in these three betrayers, we're going to see Jesus a little bit more clearly, just like we have throughout. Uh, But we're going to see something about Jesus' administration. So uh, if you're a leader, if you are a boss, if you're a manager, if you're a parent, uh, the question is this, how do you get people to do what you want them to do in the right way? So um, you, right now, you have a kingdom of sorts, a little fiefdom of sorts, an area that you watch over and you have authority over. How do you get people to do what you want them to do in the right way? How do you compel the people that live in your kingdom? How do you influence things to happen as they should? How do you get yourself and others to get things done? Uh, That's our question. Jesus has a kingdom and he has a way that he runs and governs his kingdom. And we have our own kingdom and It's a way that we've operated our lives by or guided our lives by. And we're going to really see clearly. Those, they're they're very, very different. Uh, But we're going to see it through these three betrayers. So Judas is going to be how the world is run. 
It's how the world is governed, how things get done in the world. And then Peter is this great little picture of how someone who is beginning to know Jesus' heart and wants to follow Jesus, but then realizes how impossible, how tough it is to try to live in Jesus' kingdom. And then we have a third instance, this, this naked running man away from Jesus. And he's going to show us this. He's going to show us that the only way we can live in Jesus' kingdom is through a power that's not our own. So we're going to look at, in those foils, Judas, Peter, and the naked guy, we're going to see Jesus a little better. We're going to answer that question. How do you get people to do what you want them to do in the right way? How do you run a kingdom? So uh, let's just jump in with uh, Judas. Uh, So Judas is a really great stand-in for how things um, are done. It's Whatever Judas does, it's in line with human strategies, human plans, human conceptions. It's a great picture. It's a great picture of how the world is run and governed, um, how we get things done. This might be a person who, who, who knows of Jesus, but does not know his heart, right? Doesn't know his message, his mission. Uh, Judas is a great stand-in this morning for normal human action. What, now, why is that so? Judas shows up with clubs and swords. All right? He thought, oh, you know, there might be a conflict. There might be a fight. There might be opposing wills and forces. So let's have the swords, let's have the clubs to settle the opposition to settle the conflict, uh, force and power. And, and Jesus <laughs> essentially says, what? Wait, you don't understand me, do you, Judas? Um, Paul, the Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans 13. He says governments have the power of the sword. And what he, what he means by that is um, governments have a sword and, and it's the power to force people to do what they probably don't want to do. How do you make people do things that they really don't want to do? Um, the power to make a person do things. Um, and so kingdoms always kind of have a sword. Every kingdom has a sword. The power to get their way done. Let me give you a tiny Uh, domestic example in your household. Uh, Your household is a tiny, tiny kingdom and it has a sword. Let me give you an example. No screen time if you don't clear out the dishwasher right now. No screen time if you don't clear out the dishwasher right now. Um, A kingdom has the power to make you do what you don't want to do. That's our sword in like a domestic kingdom. Um, The sword is the force of an administration, the source, or I mean, uh, uh, the sword is a force of an organization. The kingdom um, is an administration. So many of you know this is um, I, I lived in West Alabama for 10 years. Um, I lived in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. That's where the University of Alabama is located. And even if you know very little about Alabama, you know that Alabama's probably been decent at football. So even if you don't know a lot, you know that. And before Nick Saban, Alabama had these string of coaches that were a a sorry disappointment uh, on the field and 
off the field, if you know the story. And so in 2007, Jolly St. Nick comes to town. And immediately he said, we are going to do things differently. And when he said that, he was going to show you what he valued. Um, he valued a certain set of things, and he uh, was neutral about some, and he despised a certain set of things. So let me give you an example. Is uh, um, This is in the lore of Nick Saban and Alabama football, but he would have a chicken salad sandwich and chips and a drink the same lunch every single day because to his thinking, he thought, I do not want to waste any time deciding what I want to do for lunch. If I don't have to waste time deciding, then I can commit most of my time to working on coaching and football. Uh, he would go home at night for 30-minute dinners with Miss Terry, have his 30-minute dinner, and then leave promptly to go back to the office. You could see in this, you could see in his administration um, that he prized detail and efficiency and nonstop working towards excellence and accountability and severe discipline. Now, uh, uh, people like it because he wins. There's another cost, though. There's a cost of the relationships and the time spent elsewhere that he refuses to give. So there's a high cost, but people in general price the winning. He has a tiny kingdom, right? It's an administration, and it's run according to what he values and what he hates. Um, Judas shows us the same thing. Uh, the kingdom of this world, uh, the default default for humanity has a sword, and that sword is uh, power. It's money. It's sex, right? Power, force, military power, political power, influential power, relational power. Um, It's how you get things done. So Judas is thinking this is, okay, Jesus must be a revolutionary because um, for the past three years, Jesus has been talking about the kingdom of heaven or my kingdom. So, so Judas is thinking, oh, uh, uh, Jesus is going to have some sort of sword. He's going to have some sort of power because he's going to have a kingdom. No self-respecting revolutionary shows up on the scene and says, okay, uh, uh, I'm going to take down all the powers of this world. I'm going to replace it with my power. And all I have is this Q-tip, a rice paper shield, and, you know, my chill vibes. No, no, no one does that. So, so, but Jesus sees Judas thinking that. Oh, okay, the he's revolutionary. He's going to have some um, off the charts sword or power. So Jesus sees it and he sees right through it and he says, you know, am I am I leading a rebel? Am I leading a revolution that that you would come at me with swords and clubs? Do do you think of me as a gorilla? Like I'm going to use violence? As, as a means to, the end, to, to bring in my new kingdom, my new order? Do you think I'm a terrorist? Do you think I'm a proud boy? Antifa? Citizen militia? Protest? Like, you, you come at me with bullets, gas, swords? Oh, like, you don't understand. Now, let's be careful here. Does Jesus say this? Actually... I'm really not trying to change all that much. I just want you to feel peace, love, doobies, and rock and roll. I just want you to be validated and seen and listened to. This is not a power grab, man. Does Jesus say that? No, he doesn't. 
he keeps saying, I do have a kingdom, I do have a new kingdom, and I will govern my kingdom. I will be on top. I will be the king of that kingdom. But you don't understand me. If you think swords and clubs are going to stop me, so Jesus, in effect, says, look, I, I am leading a revolution. But the one I'm leading is very, very different from all other revolutions in all of human history. Uh, because all human revolutions, uh, we have to admit, like are essentially the same. So every insurgence, every movement, every reform, every new political club or organization or party or, or new caucus, every new protest, Antifa, the AOC caucus, the never Trumpers, the forever Trump, the Lincoln Project, the mega liberals, every human revolutionary is the same. Liberal and, liberals and conservatives are the same here. Um, I, I want the power. We will use power once we have it to compel others to comply. And all that changes in all of these movements are the names and what they look like. Like, they fight for change, they fight for power, they get it. But then what's at the top? The new leaders, right? The same power, the same forces, the same influence. Um, Pete, whenever I can quote the who, I'll try to. Pete Townsend, right? He said, uh, uh, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Van Halen sang it in the 90s too. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Um, it's interesting is just this last week is Barry Weiss and Bill Maurer. Um, they, they were signing a letter. So, so very liberal leaning. Um, uh, they, they signed a letter saying that they wanted to stop, uh, cancel culture, the canceling of people. And because they said it, it didn't, uh, lend itself to free dialogue, and he said, whenever free dialogue begins to end, he said, you will always have violence. So they even see what? If we stop free dialogue and the interchange of ideas, like the only, uh, violence is the only, power is the only thing we have to begin to change things. And Jesus says, look, there's a power unlike any human imagination of power. I want an entirely new administration, like that has a different power. I want I want to replace power with a different kind of power, the kingdom of heaven. I don't want to just transfer names and faces at the top of the heap, compelling everyone to use the same force of the sword. I don't want to do that. So Jesus says this: You can take me. You can take me with your swords and your clubs. That's that's cool. That's fine. But you will never be able to end what I want to do. You'll never stop my mission, in my mission, with your swords and your clubs. So, so he's saying to Judas, um, you don't understand that my kingdom is fantastically different than you imagine it. So, so Judas really is a great stand-in for the kingdom of this world. But then we have Peter. We have Peter, and um, th- this is a great example of someone who begins to see and know Jesus more intimately. But but then you run into this. You run into how impossible and tough it is for us to try to live in Jesus' kingdom. So as I said before, and math, the Gospel of Matthew is a great source for this, but Jesus, for the last three years of his ministry, all he's been talking about is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. They're essentially the same thing. This new administration that's going to happen. 
And, and Peter's going to show us this. Okay, I'm beginning to believe it. I'm beginning to love what you say about this new kingdom and this new power. I'm even beginning to maybe even long or yearn for it. But, but it's just so hard to live in your opposite kingdom. If you grew up in the church, um, you're going to know this list almost intuitively. <laughs> um, it's very Sermon on the Mount-ish from Luke 6, Matthew 5. Um, and, and, and it's this. Is uh, Christians will praise or, or, or know that they're supposed to praise what the world um, looks down upon or dis- despises. So um, that would be um, weakness. Christians praise it, but the world looks down upon it. Being poor, suffering, the marginalized, rejection, loss of your loss of fame or celebrity, loss of your name, um, your reputation. So we know that we're supposed to praise these things. It's very Sermon on the Mount-ish. Um, and we know this, we know also intuitively... We know we're kind of supposed to give the stink eye to what the world lifts up. So that could be uh, power or wealth, um, happiness, um, being connected to the famous and celebrity. Um, because, because we know this from Jesus' own teaching and list. Um, um, what is blessed in Jesus' uh, kingdom in his administration? Well, it's the poor and the downtrodden and the weak and the shunned and those who have lost their good name and lost their reputation uh, we know they're blessed so we we know that in in some weird way Jesus's kingdom is opposite of everything we really kind of like it's like the upside down in um, the, that TV show Stranger Things, right? These kids they found they find a portal to another dimension, and the dimension is actually very much or very similar to reality or the normal world. It has the same houses and the same trees and the same objects, but it's opposite in the way that it's governed. It's run very very differently. Um, it has a very different feel because it's run differently, even though all the props are the same. So we know, I think as Christians intuitively, there is this upside down to the world's ways. But it's so hard, right? It's so difficult to do. Um, this is this is Peter. He cuts the ear off of the guard, right? Classic Peter move, impulsive, exuberant, all action. Let's do this. Let's roll. It's very, but but we got to see this. It's actually very similar to how Judas sees things. Um, so Peter is essentially saying this: "I'm not going to betray you, Jesus. I got your back, but I'm going to get your back using Judas's ethic. Um, the swords and the clubs run the show; they get things done." Uh, and Jesus is saying this, look, if you want to change things, um, you have to put others ahead of yourself. And Jesus is saying, no, uh, no, no. Peter is saying, I'm going to use Judas's ethic, and that ethic is put yourself ahead of everyone else. Um, 
it's hard to follow Jesus using the world's ethic. It's impossible because you're focusing on you. Make sure you are okay and get yours through force, through the sword. So Jesus is pretty plain to Peter. He says, look, the, the scriptures must be fulfilled here. Look, they must get completed. My kingdom gets completed and not by cutting ears off. Um, he essentially says to Peter, look, my kingdom and administration, it's not of this world. It is not this world's conception of kingdom. It's the upside down kingdom, okay? I'm going to put others in front of myself. I'm going to give others money. I'm going to give others power. I'm going to give others Influence. I'm not going to get all revengey. In fact, I'm going to give up my wealth. I'm going to give up my right to power. I'm going to give up my reputation. He did it, right? In fact, in fact, in fact, people are going to think I'm I'm a criminal. I'm a criminal. That's how I'm going to get things done in my administration. Uh, Jesus does this. Now I'm going to tell you this. This is a bold statement here because it could sound really, really preachery, but but I'm going to say this. Um, that has changed the world. Now, many of you are going to say, really? Uh, no. Do you not see the dumpster fire that is American politics? Nothing's changed. I get this next part from the historian um, C.J. Uh, Somerville, Charles Somerville. Um, uh, he was a professor at the University of Florida still is there in kind of a emeritus capacity, but um, uh, most of his students over his long, long um, career teaching and publishing were very cynical and hostile to Christianity. And uh, he would tell them uh, that, that, that modern cultures rarely see the huge impact uh, that Jesus' kingdom and ethic um, even had in their objections or over their lives. So um, he, he explains this historically, and he says the standard value system for all cultures has been a shame and honor system, an ethic. And he said that's not limited to the Asiatic theater. Um, he said it's true for Germanic and Visigoths and tribal Anglo-Saxon, African, island cultures uh, are run by a shame and honor ethical system. And the idea is this. There's an honorable way to behave in a family or a, a, a community. Um, for example, it's good to give. And when I give, it makes me an honorable person. When I don't give, I'm not as honorable, thus a smidge of shame. Uh, he, he, he writes this, he says, you know, monks, priests, missionaries, orders, Christians came into these cities and cultural systems, and, and, and they also gave their money and their possessions away to an extreme degree. And it kind of looks the same, doesn't it? both give. Not a big deal. Uh, in his book, uh, The Decline of the Secular University, he talks about a scenario that he would give all of his classes. And it's kind of a, 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 a theoretical, hypothetical 
story. So he, he says it, it's late at night. Um, you come across a feeble, frail old lady. She has an oxygen tank that she's pushing around and she's shuffling at the pace of Turbo the Snail. And, and she has this big purse and it, it's just stuffed with what you can see is cash. It's even coming out of the top of her purse. Just hundreds. And, and it's late at night and there's no one around. And he, he says, oh, what do you do? So, so the shame, uh, he said, if you, if you come from a shame and honor ethic, which is the world's ethic, um, the default, uh, he says, you know, if I push her down, beat her up, that would make me a horrible person. And he says, so that ethic is a self-regarding ethic. How would this action make me look? It's an ethic that begins and ends with self. Now, he also makes the case where you could make the opposite decision and have it work for you too. So if you did knock her down and took the money and no one saw in a shame and honor society, your enriched status would bring you honor if no one knew that you had taken it from a lady, an old lady. So he says that that works for opposite decisions as well in an honor-shame culture. He said, but there's another way. And he would tell his students this. He'd say, um, you imagine what would happen to her. What, what would she feel like if I did this? Um, what would her family go through if I did this? Who is she supporting with all of that money? What cats won't get fed? What grandchildren will not have their nana? So, so he says this empathy and all cultural nods to empathy is an other regarding ethic. So he'd ask his students, who of you would knock over the lady? Well, he goes, no one, no one knocks over the lady. No one wants to admit that. Um, and so he says, okay, what is your motivation? Like, is it, so that people would regard you as an honorable person, or or is it because um, you have empathy and care? You have an other regard for another person, and, and he said um, everyone selects empathy. This is his point, and he says um, for Western modernity and also a pile of other cultures, we have been schooled. We've been taught by Christianity to a deep, deep degree. We have a new human historical standard for what is beautiful. Jesus has changed the world with his kingdom. And he didn't raise the sword. Not even a pocket knife. Not not, not even a Q-tip. But, 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 it's so hard to live in that kingdom. It's so hard to live in that administration um, where where blessed is the poor, blessed is the weak, blessed is the disreputable. It's so impossible to live like this. So we end up like Peter. Okay, I believe, but let me help you, Jesus, with this show of power. Like we can't take Jesus's kingdom unfiltered. We always dilute it with our own force. We're exactly like Judas and Peter. Now, why is this so hard? Because it feels like we are literally stabbing or injuring ourselves while someone else gets ahead of us. What's up with valuing that? 
That doesn't make sense. That doesn't even um, survival of the weakest, right? It doesn't. It doesn't make sense. What's up with valuing that? Um, a couple things here is when we say we value it, what we say is when we see someone poor, we value them. Um, they are valuable to us. We initiate reaching towards them because they are intrinsically valuable. Um, we we expend our resources and our time and our person and our possession for them because they are worthy of that. They are valuable. Um, you'll you'll know this. Like uh, I'd say, the second thing here is if if you care about a person, it will in some way um, suck things out of you. So if I begin to care about someone, my, my money will start to creep away towards that person. If I care about them, um, uh, if if I start to care for someone who has lost their reputation, um, th- their ick will begin to get on me. I'm going to disguise this as much as possible and put it behind a veil, but, but um, recently... I have been an advocate for someone who has lost their reputation for very good reasons. And in being an advocate for someone who has lost their reputation, uh, I've lost some of mine too. I felt it. All right. Um, the, The people that were hurt through this person who lost their reputation. Um, I've had to expend personal resources to people who have been hurt. And it, 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 it sucks away from, takes away from my bottom line. Um, uh, why do we share in difficulties like that? for the sake of someone else. Um, Why, though? Why, in God's name, why would we do that? Here's why we'd begin to do that. Is those things, power, the sword, money, reputation, they still don't they don't have power over us anymore. See, a person who gets Jesus' heart can have a good reputation or they can have a bad reputation. Right? And if they have a good reputation or not, they're like, you know what? I have a good name in Jesus. Nothing's changed. Let me give you a concrete example here for our community. Um, since moving here, South Pasadena, um, I, I, you know this, living here, it, it's an affluent area. South Pasadena, Pasadena, San Marino, La Cañada, and, and, and um, what you do is you have person A. Person A is wealthy and affluent, and they need their wealth to show that they are decent and good and valuable and wonderful and upstanding and worthy of love and affection and respect, and they're consumed with wealth, and they're consumed with the absence of it, and they're devastated if they don't have wealth or there's injury to their wealth, or they're willing to do anything to get wealth. Um, And 
they would never say this out loud, but they kind of look down upon those who are poor because you obviously haven't been responsible. All right, that's person A. Person B is this: um, they despise the affluent and the wealthy, the privileged. They despise them, and because um, they themselves have rejected it, and they're sparse and they're lean, and they have a despisal of wealth. And that despisal of wealth is to show people how noble and upstanding and worthy of respect and love affection, and they're consumed with others having too much, and they will always let you know about it. Um, there, there have been people in our community too. They say, "How can you stand living in such a wealthy community?" They kind of despise the rich. Now, this is interesting: is they both hate each other. They don't respect and love each other, but both are being controlled. By money, the absence or the presence of money. There's the sword of money is still over both person A and person B. But a Jesus follower is free. If I have money, thank you, God. If I don't have money, thank you, God. You're my joy. See, if we are the people who know, and we know for sure that our love and our worth and our value has come to us, not by our money, but by sheer unfiltered, undeserved, outreaching a fire hose of grace, then we can be wealthy or we can be poor. It just doesn't matter. It just doesn't communicate any anything other thing to our identities and our soul. We can have it. We can not have it. My soul is the same. My joy is the same. Um, see, the sword is not over my life anymore. The club of money doesn't inflate me or deflate me. The thing that forces me and compels me doesn't run the show anymore. But it's hard, and Peter shows us this, that time and time again, we kind of get it, but we fail. We kind of get it, but we fail. We forget time and time again. Peter shows us that. Brings us to our running man, who is young and naked. <laughs> and he shows us that the only way we can live in Jesus' kingdom now, you can reread that part and you're like, yeah, Tim, I just don't see that in the naked running man. <laughs> All right, here's this young man, and uh, he's been kind of following Jesus, and he is willing to run away, just stark naked, not a stitch on his body. He's willing to do that than be associated with Jesus, and he is a coward, and he is totally filled with shame, and being naked doubles the shame. I, I get this from Tom Wright, and he, he used to be the bishop of Durham, and, and he writes this as this guy ran away um, naked and shameful from Jesus, uh, but where else did he run from? A garden. That looks an awful lot like Adam and Eve running away from a garden, naked filled with shame, grabbing foliage to cover up um, in Eden uh, there's a test in a garden and everybody fails hundreds of years later there's another garden and there's a loyalty test <laughs> and everybody fails and they're at the end Strip naked, running in shame, searching for something to cover up with. 
Uh, Tom Wright is so descriptive here. He says, but wait, but wait, there's somebody still in the garden passing the test. Um, why did everybody run away? They're afraid of humanity's swords. They're afraid of the clubs. They're afraid of reputation. They're afraid of all those forces. Um, but Christ, but Christ is standing firm and facing something way worse than people thinking bad stuff about you. You got to remember this: when Adam and Eve are sprinting from the garden or trudging from the garden, whatever which one, uh, they they look back and what do they see? That sword, divine justice, right? There's no way back unless someone takes the sword. We ran, and Jesus stood in the garden and said, I'll take it. I'll take it. Um, if you just observe Jesus, and you watch him, and you say, okay, Jesus is going to be the example of my life and my model and my inspiration and I'm going to try to copy him as much as possible. That will grind you down to nothing. The sword will get you. The sword will get you. But if Jesus is your substitute... That will save you. And it will give you this power to be free from the sword. Question. How do you get people to do what you want them to do in the right way? You put them first. You stand in their place. And you take the sword that has compelled them to destruction and then you declare them valuable sons and daughters of the most high God breathe that one in today this afternoon um, Jesus as your substitute Breathe it in again. It will kill the swords that have been hanging over your head. Pray with me. Our Father, our God, our friend, through Jesus, don't just give us an ethic of regarding others. Uh, let us drink in and know the person who regarded us before himself. Apply this to our minds. Apply this to our hearts. Apply this to our hands. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.